This is three of this series. And so far, Pastor Kyle and I have um, essentially tried to deconstruct some of our conceptions of what the good life is. Uh, Pastor Kyle spent the first week looking at the woman at the well, the thirsty woman at the well, uh, and trying to undermine some of the confidence that we might have in finding the good life apart from God. Uh, Last week, I spent time looking at the hungry crowd in John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we see a crowd who knows that they must come to Jesus to get what their heart desires and I tried to get us to see that there is, in some ways, a selfish way that we can come to Christ in which Christ wants nothing to do with us. That if we're only after the good things that Christ can give to us, we are using him as a genie and not God. And so my encouragement was for us to come to Jesus, not to uh, receive bread, but to receive the bread giver, the, the one who is the true bread of life. And, and part of this series, we, we've looked at two people, the woman at the well and the hungry crowd, that I'm not sure that any of us actually would have wanted to trade places with. Kyle mentioned that his first week. We wouldn't want to trade places with the woman at the well. Why not? Well, she has five failed marriages. She is the shame or at least laughingstock of her tribe. And none of us want that. We would say, obviously, she does not have the good life. Or, and I would say even the crowd last week, the crowd that's desperate for bread, so poor that they're chasing after somebody who can give them handouts. The last two weeks, in some ways, are going to be opposites of the thirsty woman. and Because we'll, we'll look at next week, a man by the name of Nicodemus, a man who is uh, well-respected a religious leader, affluent, somebody in contrast to the woman at the well. Today, we're going to look at Pilate, somebody who's wealthy, powerful, a political leader, in some ways contrasting the hungry crowd. People who I think it might be more appealing for us to trade places with, the the wealthy religious leader, the wealthy successful political leader. Uh, And what I want to do today is undermine even that as well. I asked a question last week. What could God take from you before you started to doubt whether he loved you or whether it was possible for you to say at the end of your life that it was a good life? What good things could God withhold from you before you started to question his goodness? So if, if, if God took away your kids or your dream of kids, could you in all honesty say, I still have my joy. I still have enough. God has still been good to me. If if God withheld health from you, could you still find fulfillment in this life? When we look at Jesus' life, could you live the life that Jesus lived single, relative poverty, relative obscurity, constantly being misunderstood, constantly being misrepresented, who would eventually live a life of injustice. Could you say at the end of, if you live Jesus' life, that it was a good life? The Christian answer to that is yes. The struggle for us as a church is to have the faith to believe that even in the midst of want, 
that we have enough. And so I want to pray for us one more time uh, that God would help us to see and understand and grasp, delight in uh, the truth that he has for us this morning. So let's turn to God in prayer. And Father, we're needy people. And you have been generous to reveal yourself to us and to give us your word. The source of all truth. The revelation of reality as it is, not a perspective or a speculation, but truth. And God, I pray that as a church, we would seek to know what is true and to orient our lives around this truth. And so, Lord, I ask this morning that you would open our eyes to be able to see what is true and that you would bring the kind of conviction that's needed to steer us away from lies that we are currently believing and operating under. Lies that are influencing how we think and how we feel and how we act about the world that we see. And that that kind of conviction would cause us to come back to the truth. And that we might step out in faith on the basis of that truth to a new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of acting. Ultimately, Lord, so the world might come to see that we as a church believe something about the God that we serve. And I pray, Lord, that would be an encouragement for us to come to you as living water, come to you as the bread of life, and this morning come to you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be in the book of John this morning again. All of our stories are in John. This one comes in John 18. Uh, we'll, we'll start in verse 28, but John 18 is a wild chapter. The book of John, if you looked at the, the whole gospel account as a whole, uh, we've got 20 chapters. The first 11 are John detailing three years of Jesus' ministry, the first three years of Jesus' ministry uh, in 11 chapters. The final nine are dedicated really to Jesus' final week. And so in that way, John is helping us to see that the, the focal point, the thing that matters most about Jesus' life, there's a lot of important things that happen in that final week. And so just in the, the chapter uh, 18, we find that uh, if you read it through, up through verses 20 or verse 28, that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He's arrested by religious soldiers. He's denied by one of his disciples, Peter. Uh, he's brought before a whole slew of uh, officials. And we've got Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, and the high priest Caiaphas. Um, and eventually, Jesus finds his way in front of the, the one man who has the ability to decide his destiny. Judas brought him to the religious leaders. Religious leaders bring him to Pilate. And so our story this morning focuses on uh, Jesus interacting with Pilate. Here we go. Verse 28. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, it's the high priest, ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. 
His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? Verse 30. We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then, take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. They respond here, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he should die. Verse 33, then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He asked him. Jesus replied, is this your own question? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? I want to pause here and just say, this is one of the frustrations I have with reading the Bible is I can't hear it. And I I, I feel like it would be helpful for me to be able to hear what was... What was the tone in Pilate's voice? If these proceedings would have been recorded and shown on C-SPAN, like what, what kind of tone and, and what inflection did, did Pilate have when he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Some New Testament scholars and Greek scholars will be able to interpret the Greek and try to see that certain sentence structure will imply certain tone and I'm neither one of those people who knows how to do that, and so I have to rely on some of their uh, ingenuity or uh, intelligence. And, and they say that the emphasis is on you here. Are you the king of the Jews? As if Jesus is so unkinglike that as Pilate is interacting with him, Pilate says, Are you? You don't look like a king. Are you, are you the king of the Jews? Are, are you the king? I see, I don't know. I don't know how to, to re- read that line. And Jesus responds to that question with a good follow-up question. In some ways, who's asking? And I don't think Jesus means to be smart about it. I think he's trying to get to the truth of the matter. I think Jesus wants to understand the kind of question that Pilate's asking. Are, are, are you asking? Is this your own question? Or did someone else tell you? Is this someone else's question? And the difference matters because if, if, if Pilate is asking Jesus, are you the king with a military who is now a threat to the kingdom? Jesus is going to answer that question differently than if he's asking, Jesus, are you the king of kings and lord of lords? Are you the Messiah? And when it comes down to determining justice here, Pilate is really concerned about whether or not Jesus is a threat to the kingdom of Rome. And so Jesus needs to respond to Pilate the way that Pilate wants to be responded to. And Pilate responds, am am I a Jew? Uh, Of course, I'm not asking whether you're the king of kings, lord of lords, the Messiah. That's a Jewish thing. I want to know, do you have an army of soldiers? Do you have uh, military aspirations? Are you going to lead a rebellion that's going to cause trouble in Judea, my territory, or to the greater Roman Empire itself? Because if you are, and if that's what you're claiming, I have the right to crucify you. Keep reading. Verse 36, Jesus answered, 
my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say that I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the crowd and told them, he is not guilty of any crime. Such an interesting conversation. Jesus describes his kingdom and says to Pilate, Pilate, I don't have that kind of kingdom. I'm not that kind of king. If you're wondering whether I'm going to lead a rebellion, if I'm going to gather troops, bring swords and chariots to this battle, no. My kingdom is not of this world, which is a good reminder to us that our hopes for a world transformation does not lie in military conquest. Uh, We can't go and wage some sort of holy war to bring about the kingdom of God. That's not Jesus' method. But as he talks about having a kingdom, Pilate asks the question, Aha, so you are a king. And Jesus responds, You say that I'm a king. I looked at every translation to to see if Jesus responds, You are correct. You have spoken correctly. And and Jesus doesn't. I think because he's trying to say to Pilate, I'm not that kind of king. You keep using that king word, and I don't think you know what it means. And Pilate hears him say that he's come to testify to the truth. Pilate asks, what's truth, and then walks away. Pilate's heard enough. He knows enough information based on what Jesus has said to go to the crowd and be able to say, Jesus is not guilty. He is not a threat. Pilate has seen other traitors, other rebels, and he has squashed those rebellions. Jesus is not a threat to the kingdom. And he goes back to the crowd. And if we read verses uh, 39 uh, through 19, chapter, or chapter 19, verse uh, 7, we would see that um, Pilate's trying in a lot of ways, to get rid of Jesus. In fact, we saw it already in the section that we read. And Jesus, Pilate said, you handle it. This is, I don't, this is not, not my, I don't, I don't need to be involved here. And as he tries to release Jesus, the crowd is upset. They want Jesus to be crucified and punished. And so Pilate tries a variety of tactics to try to get rid of Jesus. He realizes that Jesus is a member uh, or from Galilee, and he's like, well, that's, uh, that's Herod's jurisdiction. So if you read Luke 23, you would see that Pilate sends Jesus to someone else, hoping that they'll make the decision. He comes up with the plan. He's like, oh, remember that this, at, at this time of year, we have a tradition where I will release to you one of your own criminals. As an act of grace or as an act of mercy, I will let go one of your own people who's been arrested. And he's thinking, all right, I can, I can get rid of Jesus by calling him guilty, maybe, and then allowing them to see that he's guilty and then give him back, that they'll take him back. And they say, no, we don't want Jesus, we want Barabbas. And he says, oh, okay, I'll flog him, I'll beat Jesus, I'll I'll punish him, and I'll parade him back as this bloody pulp of a mess and hopefully pull on the heartstrings of the the compassionate Jewish people who will see, okay, that's enough. Um, 
clearly Jesus has learned his lesson, and, and none of this is working. And so Pilate's getting frustrated. And so we pick up here in chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back to the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said again, You'd have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him. But the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. And from here, Pilate's running out of options of how to release Jesus. The crowd is continuing to chant, Crucify him, crucify him. And eventually Pilate gives way. And that is how it came to be that Jesus Christ is crucified. Betrayed by a friend, denied by another, handed over to Jews, who beat him, mocked him, bound him, saw him guilty of a crime that he didn't necessarily commit. Brought before Pilate, who saw that he was not guilty, tried to release, tried to release, tried to release. The one man who can decide his destiny decides to crucify him. And so Jesus is at this point led away. This morning, I want to talk to us about the problem of power. And my first point for us this morning is this. Um, well, it's not problem. It's more of a point. First point. Power has rights. When you have power, you have rights. You have perks. You have privileges. And Pilate is no exception to this. As a Roman governor, he would have had access to all of Rome's luxuries. If you've ever seen a documentary on Rome, you know that in some ways they lived a very exorbitant lifestyle, excessive lifestyle. They, they had amenities that you might be surprised that people 2,000 years ago would have had. Maybe like heated floors. If you Google, you can find out what Pilate's palace looked like on the, the seaside of the Mediterranean in Caesarea. The only reason he's down in Jerusalem is because he knows Passover is a time where there's a lot of people and uh, if there are a lot of people, there's a chance for riots. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and he has a, he has a place there. He's got like a place in Jerusalem, a place in Caesarea. If he could have traveled the whole known Roman world, uh, and at that point be able to experience the life that a Roman leader would have had. And gardens, bathhouses, banquets, exotic foods. Want, you can think of somebody who's in power, what kind of lifestyle they might live. And that's because there are rights and there are perks to power. Power has rights. Power has perks. A lot of us know this. Every teenager who's trapped inside their parents' roof longs for the day that they can be freed from their powerless estate and live on their own where they can make their own decisions. They get to decide where to go. Uh, they decide how late they can stay out and who they can stay out late with. And, and they feel like their life would be a whole lot better once they have the power to make their own decisions. Power has rights. You can decide what to do and what not to do. 
But not just teenagers know that there's perks to power. We know as adults there are perks to power. There are perks. If you move up your company's ladder, that uh, if you move up from the position maybe you're in now to a higher position, you might have more perks, like a higher salary. Uh, You might have greater freedom, maybe more vacation. There are perks to the power that you have in a position. And so my first point is power has perks. Pilate would have had these perks. But power has responsibilities. There is a marvelous quote about uh, power and responsibility. And along with Pilate's perks came responsibility. Yes, he had the palaces. Yes, he had women and food. And yes, he would have had all that a king might have. But he also had the responsibilities that a king might have. He wasn't king, but he had the responsibility to lead. He had the responsibility to make sure that his kingdom was in order. Uh, When there was a problem, who was going to solve it? Pilate. And who was going to be held responsible for a bad decision? Pilate. And so Pilate is concerned about Jerusalem right now because he's thinking there is a mob of people who want to crucify someone. And if they don't get their way there might be a riot. There might be, there might be a problem. Rights and responsibilities seem to go hand in hand with power. Well, we might think of power solely in the realm of rights, but once we get into positions of power, we start to realize that there are responsibilities that go along with it. And it seems like the greater the power, the greater the responsibility, and maybe even the greater stress. Did you pick up on how Pilate might be feeling in the text? You you probably don't need a New Testament or Greek background to know that he is stressed when he brings Jesus back into his court and says, why won't you talk to me? He's realizing that he's not getting his way. His, his, his conscience and actually his wife are encouraging him to release Jesus. And the crowd does not want Jesus to be released. They want Jesus to be crucified. And he's realizing if he doesn't give the crowd what, he, what, what they want, they might rebel. They might cause a riot, create a scene in Rome. And that's going to make him, Pilate, the leader, look bad. I mean, he looks bad enough. He might lose his position. Caesar might find out that Poor Pilate's not able to lead his people. We need to get Pilate out, whether remove him or remove him. Pilate's starting to worry. And and in fact, even worse, the the mob said something very interesting in the last little section that I read. Any friend of Jesus is not a friend of Caesar. If you release Jesus, you are proving that you're not a friend of Caesar. And so he's thinking, if Caesar finds out, He's going to take my job, and he's going to take my neck. It's interesting that responsibilities have such a close connection to power. I mean, have you ever seen pictures of presidents uh, before and after their terms? Uh, you see, I mean, they, they age far more than just eight years. And maybe you feel that as well when you think about your own responsibilities. You realize that there is stress that goes along with the power that you might have. And as Americans, we have a crazy amount of power. 
which has a lot of rights. We have abilities that I honestly think that if Pilate was able to see the kind of lives that we live, the rights, the privileges, the perks that we have in 2018, that even a Roman official would look at our lives and say, you know what, I would love to be able to trade with them. They're able to fly wherever they want. They're able to order things from around the world and get them there in two days. They're able to do things that the Roman world was never able to do. Our homes constantly at a particular temperature. Our kids are able to do far more than what Pilate's kids would have been able to do. Pilate's kids wouldn't have been able to travel the Galilean countryside playing soccer. They had other responsibilities to take care of. They didn't have the freedom to do it. But with those rights come responsibilities. And I think with the responsibilities that we have, we can find that there is stress that comes with it. And the point I want to make uh, uh, as we finish this section is that power is an illusion. And this is, I think, the point that Jesus is getting to with Pilate. Power is an illusion. When Pilate threatens Jesus... He says this, Don't you know that I have the power to release you and crucify you? That is the threat of a man who's realizing that things are not going his way. And he, is, he has tried bargaining with the crowd. He has tried begging the crowd. He has tried uh, compromise. He's tried manipulation. He's tried just outsourcing it. He's tried to get rid of his responsibility. And he's realizing that all of his tactics are failing. And so he tries one last threatening move to Jesus by saying, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do? And Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He says, what does he say? You have no power over me unless it's been given to you from above. Jesus says to Pilate, the Roman governor, you have no power over me, unless it's been given to you from God. Now, I think that's a bold statement. Like, if, if, if you were sitting before Pilate, who said to you, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the ability? There would be, I think, fear in my way of like, okay, yes, you're right. Um, okay, whatever you need to hear, I'm going to tell you what you need to know so that I can be set free. And, and Jesus responds calmly, confidently. You have no power. It feels like a burn if I was Pilate and someone said that to me. You have no power to me. And Pilate doesn't respond. He doesn't slap Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm Pilate the powerful. He doesn't flex in front of Jesus. What's he do? He tries to let Jesus go. Even more. Some versions will say. From this point on, he tried to release Jesus even more. It goes back to the crowd. Now, ultimately, Pilate doesn't do it. Ultimately, Pilate ends up crucifying Jesus. But I find it interesting that Pilate doesn't fight back to what Jesus had to say. I, I, I think it might be that there was a little bit of a relief that came over Pilate when Jesus said, You have no power. I think there might be some relief in realizing that power is an illusion. Because when we operate under the power of illusion, or the, yeah, 
the, the illusion of power. One of the things that I think that we say to ourselves is this. It all depends on me. It all depends on me. And Pilate is feeling that weight. He's feeling like this decision all depends on me. And there was some relief in knowing that there might be someone else who's calling the shots. As you look across the horizon of your responsibilities, it's not surprising to me that we face an epidemic of anxiety because the responsibilities have soared alongside the rights and privileges and opportunities that we have. The affluence that we have as Americans to do anything that we want has come along with responsibilities that once you get the house, who has to maintain the house? You do. Once you get a motorcycle or a boat, you know what you have to do with those things? You've got to take care of them. You know what happens if you have kids that you want to see succeed? You've got to take them here and there and there, and your week is full of responsibilities because of all of the opportunities you have. And at some point, we might come to realize that the power that we have is an illusion. There's an article that was in the New York Times, um, October of 2017, detailing the epidemic rise of anxiety among teenagers. And I want to read to you um, the beginning portion. It's not the whole article. Um, But I want you to feel what this kid Jake might be feeling. The disintegration of Jake's life took him by surprise. It happened early in his junior year of high school while he was taking three advanced placement classes, running on his school's cross-country team, and traveling to model United Nations conferences. It was a lot to handle, but Jake, the likable, hard-working, oldest sibling in a suburban North Carolina family, he was the kind of teenager who handled things. Though he was not prone to boastfulness, the fact that he had never really failed at anything, the fact was that he had never really failed at anything. Not coincidentally, failure was one of Jake's biggest fears. He worried about it privately. Maybe he couldn't keep up with his peers. Maybe he wouldn't succeed in life. The relentless drive to avoid such a fate seemed to come from deep inside him. He considered it a strength. Jake's parents knew he could be high-strung. In middle school, they sent him to a therapist when he was too scared to sleep in his own room. But nothing prepared them for the day two years ago when Jake, then 17, seemingly ran 150 miles per hour into a brick wall. His mother said he refused to go to school and he curled up in the fetal position on the floor. I just can't take it, he screamed. You just don't understand. Jake was right. His parents didn't understand. Jake didn't really understand either. But he also wasn't good at verbalizing the thought he knew. That going to school suddenly felt impossible. That people were undoubtedly judging him. That nothing he did felt good enough. All of a sudden, I couldn't do anything, he said. I was so afraid 
His tall, lanky frame succumbed to. His stomach hurt. He had migraines. You know how a normal person feels when they, uh, you know how a normal person might have their stomach lurch if they walk into a classroom and there's a pop quiz, he told me. Well, I basically started having that feeling all the time. Alarmed, Jake's parents sent him to his primary care physician who prescribed Prozac, an antidepressant often given to anxious teenagers. It was the first of many medications that Jake, who asked that his last name not be used, would try over the next year. But none seemed to work, and some made a bad situation worse. An increase in dosage made Jake much more excited, acting strangely and almost manic, his father wrote in a journal in the fall of 2015. A few weeks later, Jake locked himself in a bathroom at home and tried to drown himself in a bathtub. Anxiety is an interesting phenomena. But not because it exists. It's because I don't understand why it doesn't exist to a greater extent. I mean, when we think about Jake and the pressure that he's put on himself, the responsibilities that he's taken upon himself, are you not surprised that he would start to feel stressed, feel anxious? Power has rights, power has responsibilities, and those responsibilities bring stress. And so why aren't more people experiencing anxiety? Why aren't more people feeling like Jake, that there's no escape for them? That's the question that I have. How do you feel when you look across the landscape of your responsibilities? I think one of the things that's unique about anxiety is that it's only, we only feel anxious maybe when we start to realize that we can't do all that we know we need to do. Anxiety begins to occur to us when the illusion of power, the illusion of control begins to unravel. And when it begins to unravel, we realize just how little we can control. I mean, what can you control? Farmers, can you control the weather? Did you control the rain that we got yesterday? You might think you did because it rained well yesterday, but you can't control that. What can you control? Can you control whether or not people like you? Can you, res- can you control whether or not people will do what you tell them to do? You can't. Every teacher, every boss, every parent, every coach, none of these people are able to get people to do what they want them to do. Now, you can try all different kinds of methods. Parents, you probably have a lot of tricks up your sleeve to get your kids to to do things. You can beg. You can compromise. You can use a lot of pilot's tactics, actually. At some point, you might even just threaten. But I think everyone would realize that there's a certain point where your power ends. You don't have the ability to do what you want to see happen or maybe even what you need to see happen. Can you make sure that every person likes you? There's a great quote. Um, It's not actually from Abraham Lincoln, but he popularized it. 
I said, you can please some of the people all of the time. And you can please all of the people some of the time. But you can't please all of the people all of the time. Now, we try. We try, and some of us are fairly good at doing it for a while, but we're totally devastated when we end up coming to realize that we can't. And one of the reasons I think this generation might be seeing the rise of anxiety is that we have been trained and taught a whole generation of people to believe that we can do and we can be anything that we set our minds to. I didn't have a New York Times article written about me, but my story is a little similar to Jake's, except it didn't happen in my junior year. It happened when I was in sixth grade. Sixth grade Brandon had an emotional meltdown. Now, I, I had responsibilities, sixth grade responsibilities, but responsibilities that in my mind became overwhelming, that I started to realize that I didn't have the ability to do all that I needed to do. And after a, a day where I just could not stop crying through all of my classes, I was sent to a uh, school counselor. But before they ended up giving me Prozac, someone had the grace to remind me of something that was true. Before they gave me the drugs that could then set me back on a path that would help me to do everything, they said, Brennan, you can't do it all. Brennan, you can't do it all. And, and just like Jesus' words to Pilate, you would have no power if it was not given. I took that statement, you can't do it all, as a great sign of relief. It was the first step in freedom. First step to avoid the trappings of anxiety. All of the things that power grants, the rights and the responsibilities helps me to avoid the anxiety that can often creep in. And so what am I calling us to as a church this morning? In some ways, surrender. To give you permission to say that you don't need to do it all because you can't do it all. Tim Keller has a quote that I want to bring before you this morning. He says this, Becoming a Christian is not like signing up for a gym. You sign up to a gym because you want to get stronger. You sign up to a gym because you want to get healthier so that you can do more, be more. And he says, becoming a Christian is not like signing up for a gym. It is not a living well program that would help you flourish and realize your potential. Christianity is not another vendor supplying spiritual services you engage as long as it meets your needs at a reasonable price. Christian faith is not a negotiation but a surrender. It means to take your hands off your life. Christianity is not a negotiation, but a surrender. It means to take your hands off your life. Surrender doesn't get a lot of positive press. I mean, losers surrender in war. And who wants to be a loser? Winners get Losers lose. They lose out on power and its perks. I tell you, surrender can be a sweet and beautiful and freeing thing if the one to whom we surrender is good, is wise, and is powerful so that we can trust him.
And Jesus came to testify to that truth. That there's a God in heaven who is infinitely wise, knows everything in the world about you, and knows the best way to bring about the best for you. He's infinitely wise. Jesus came to testify to the truth of who God is, that he's infinitely wise. Jesus came to testify to the truth that God is infinitely good. That he has a love that is boundless, that is deeper and fuller than we can imagine. Jesus came to testify to that truth. And that he's powerful. Jesus came to testify to the power of God. That there is nothing in the world, supernatural or natural, living or dead, that God doesn't have supreme power over. Even in the darkest moments, we see God's hand and plan moving for our good because he's powerful. And so if you were able to surrender to that person, that king, that would be good news for us. What blows my mind about uh, John chapter 18 is just how many people ended up coming before Jesus and were in some ways formal and informal forced to make a decision about Jesus. Judas, Pilate, Peter, Herod, Annas, Caiaphas, the whole Sanhedrin. There are a lot of people who are in some way, formal and informal, making a judgment about who Jesus is. And based on their conclusion of who Jesus is, the verdict that they grant, they end up living some consistent, some inconsistent. I'll give you an example. So Peter makes the statement throughout the Gospels that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's a good judgment. That is, that is true. He's testifying to the truth. But his life was incongruent with the truth because when Jesus was arrested, Peter tried to fight. Jesus would have been like, that's not what my kingdom's about, Peter. That's not the proper way to live in light of the truth that you know. Peter ends up denying Jesus. That's inconsistent with what Peter should have known to be true. The, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders, they believe that Jesus is uh, a threat, a blasphemer, and so they punish him. Their verdict is incorrect, but in some ways at least it's consistent. Their actions were consistent with it. Pilate's an interesting case because he had truth standing right before him. And he asks the question, what is truth? But he never seeks the answer. He, he asks the question, but he leaves. At Keystone, we want to be a people who know the truth about Jesus. Who believe the truth about Jesus and allow that truth about Jesus to shape every facet of our lives. We would say that we are a gospel-centered church. What that means is that the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done should be at the center of our lives. It should be the truth that we orient every facet of our lives around. And the question is, are we that? Are we the people? Jesus, in some ways, is still on trial. He's still awaiting our verdict He's still waiting to see how we will live and act and think on the basis of our verdict. What do we think about Jesus? Now, a lot of us would say, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's, that's so good. We're, we want to see people come to believe that truth. 
but we also want to see people's lives be shaped by that truth. And so we start to, I need to start thinking about, is my life lived consistently to the point? And, and maybe one of the ways that I can encourage us to action would be in relationship to prayer. I, I find that people who think that they are in control don't need to pray because they've got things handled. In their world, it all depends on them and they can handle it. And, and maybe you have great proficiencies and you are handling it. Or maybe your world is small enough that you don't need God to do anything for you. But I can tell you that the people who end up praying are the people who know that they're powerless. And as long as we operate under the illusion of control, we have no need to go to God. We get everything that we need for ourselves. It's an illusion, but it's the illusion that we operate under. I find that the people who are most willing to both come to Jesus in, for salvation and come to Jesus for prayer are people who know that they're weak, know that they can't do it. And so they come to the one who is able. As a church, we're praying for revival. Why? Because we know we can't manufacture it. We can't change the heart of people. We can't re-energize them, revive them. God can. And so as a church, we're trying to pray that, God, would you do the thing that we want to see that we can't do? We're also praying because we know life action can't do it. We're bringing in a team of people in October, and we're praying to God not because this group of people's coming and we want God to, I don't know, give them supernatural powers to do it. No, we want God to do it because we know that this crowd that's coming can't do it either. And so my encouragement for us as a church is to first draw our conclusions about who Jesus is and what he's testified to and begin to shape our lives on the basis of that truth. We pray, Father, we ask that your spirit would illuminate truth. That as we look at your word, you would help us to see reality as it is. Lord, our perspective is narrow, and we see one angle. And that angle can be very convincing. Lord, we want to be exposed to what is and what is, just what is the reality. And Lord, the reality is, is that there is another kingdom, and you are on its throne. And Lord, we want to operate on the basis of that truth. Lord, we praise you for the power that we do have, that you have granted to us with its perks and privileges. And Lord, as we face the responsibilities in this life, I pray that you would bring peace to our souls, knowing that there is a king above our kingdoms. For that in Jesus' name, amen.